Welcome to Design Privacy Weekly, a podcast about all things data security and privacy. Each week, we deliver the best in-depth analysis of real data privacy case studies for business leaders and privacy professionals so that they can stay informed of the latest news, trends, and developments in the industry. Whether you're a business owner, privacy expert, a privacy beginner, or just want to know more, this This is is the the podcast podcast for you. Now, here are your hosts, Chuck Cameron and Kerry Record. Hello, and welcome to our second episode of Design Privacy Weekly. Today, we want to get back to basics. We want to give you a brief overview of our newly passed Data Protection Act and to let you know a little bit about the duties and rights that stem from this act. Chuck, over to you. The Data Protection Act, data protection, what is it? More importantly, where did it come from? So in Jamaica, most of us would have heard about the NIDS case that went to our constitutional court, where our Chief Justice declared that there's a right to privacy, a constitutional right to privacy in relation to informational privacy. In other words, personal data has a protection of the Constitution. What that has done is that today, as we listen to this podcast, it means that if you are processing personal data in your business, you are actually breaching one's right to privacy. If you are processing that personal data without that their authorization. So from a, the constitutional point of view, there is a right to privacy. And if you process data without authorization today, with or without the Data Protection Act, we haven't reached there, you are breaching that right to privacy. An example that I often give is that of a police officer coming to your house, and for the Jamaicans listening to the program would understand the vernacular, if them come to your house and kick off your door and search your house without a search warrant, they would be breaching your right to privacy. Correct. However, if they were first to have gone to a parish court judge, presented an affidavit contained, setting out the basis upon which they want the search warrant, and the judge subsequently issued that search warrant in accordance with the law, and that same police officer come back to your house and not using Jamaican vernacular, knock on your door, present you with a search Search warrant warrant and tell you this is the lawful basis that we are going to restrict your right to privacy by conducting the search warrant. While it is a restriction of your right to privacy, it would have been done in accordance with the law. So that's the very same situation we find ourselves in with the Data Protection Act, whereas because it's no constitutional right to privacy in relation to our personal data, what the legislation does, it allows us for the lawful processing of personal data. So if you process it, if you ignore the act, you are breaching one's constitutional rights and breaching the legislation. If you comply with the legislation, while you may be restricting one's right to privacy, you will be doing it in a, in a lawful manner. Right? In a, in a lawful manner. 
So that's, 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 that's a starting point. And we could also put it in a, the international context because our Data Protection Act really mirrors the GDPR. Oh, to the European Union? Correct. And that, that means a general data protection regulation that was passed in 2016 and implemented in 2018. Our legislation closely mirrors the GDPR. However, we do have our own unique features. One of the primary reasons for the GDPR was to make business transactions across different European states easier because prior to the GDPR, all the European countries had their own data protection regimes. So it was very costly and difficult to share personal data with the, within the borders of the European Union. What the GDPR sought to do was standardize all the data protection regulators and supervisor authorities mm -hmm. so there can be the seamless movement of personal data within the European Union. And it's important to contextualize our Data Protection Act in that context because the Data Protection Act is a tool that allows us to conduct business much more easily and more efficiently. We've often heard the phrase that data is a new oil. Yes. Well, I like to say that data protection is the pipe that allows that oil to flow freely. So the legislation is broken up into about four different sections. The first thing it does is that it specifically sets out those rights that the Chief Justice made mention to in the next case. So it breaks it out. The second thing it does is that it puts an onus on third parties, business operators, to enable those rights. So not only did the legislation say that you as a data subject have rights, they placed a legal obligation on business owners to ensure that the data subject rights are enabled and when a data subject interacts with your business, you must respect those rights. And you respect those rights by putting systems in place to allow the data subject to exercise his rights. The third thing that the legislation does is that it sets out processing standards that you must comply with and must observe. And finally, it sets out the, a supervisory authority that would oversee the enabling of the rights and ensure that you are compliant with the data processing standards. That sounds all nice and dandy, but I'm going to give you what I think is something that you can take away from this podcast. And if it's any one thing you are going to take away, I hope it is this. So imagine that, well, imagine that the Chief Justice in that same NIT decision said, hey, you, you now, own, you now have in your possession crown jewels. Mm -hmm. Those crown jewels do not belong to you. Those crown jewels belong to your customers. And as such, you are now fiduciary for those crown jewels. 
you have these crown jewels in your business. So imagine that your business is a castle. It is your responsibility to ensure that the crown jewels that you are holding for people are kept safe. And at all material times, you can account to the owner of the crown jewels as to what's going on with their crown jewels. Similarly so, the owner of the crown jewels has, is, is their crown jewels. So at any given moment, they can say, hey, remind me, how many watches you have? How many Rolex watches you have for me? Where are they? But wait, 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 wait. How come you have that, that ring and I don't remember giving it to you? And how come Harry have my watch and I never give you permission to give it, give it to him? So the legislation, having said that you hold crown jewels in, their, in your possession, have said, okay, you must, you therefore need, your castle needs to be foolproof, needs to be intruder proof. You have to ensure that nobody can break into your castle and steal those crown jewels that don't belong to you because they're not yours. They're not yours. And finally, they have said, okay, while we have said how you must treat these crown jewels, we are going to set up somebody to oversee and ensure that you have followed the laws that we have put in place to safeguard those crown jewels. So that, that is a concept or idea I want you to think about, that the personal data that you now have are crown jewels. And going back to that adage, if you believe data is the new oil, it's actually not an appropriate analogy. Crown jewels, oil, yeah, it is the most valuable thing in your business that you must safeguard. So over the course of the podcast, we're going to be using real life examples by way of decisions from other jurisdictions as to what some of those rights look, look like and how are those rights enforced in a practical way. Um, but very quickly, we're just going to walk through some of the basic rights that data subjects have. Kerry, what are some of those rights that you'd say data subjects have that we're going to be addressing? Uh, under our act, our new act, data subjects will have the right to access their information from those who are holding their crown jewels. Um, they will be able to make requests to find out at any time, what is it that you have? What information do you have? Um, how are you processing it? Um, and to get that information in a format that they can uh, consume. They can also request that their data be erased if they feel that it is incorrect, if it is inaccurate, if it is out of date. Um, they have the right to object to the processing. Um, they have the right to what is somewhat new term, data portability. Mm -hmm. So if their data resides with uh, one business owner, with one data controller, they have the right to request that that data controller transfer their data to another data controller. And that's going to be very useful to, um, to individuals, to our, to our data subjects, as you can imagine. I, I don't think business owners such as banks 
and medical service providers may think that it's, they they will they, they will not it, to it. they will not it will it will be onerous i suppose in the, in the beginning until they put processes in place so but i'm not even think i'm not only thinking about the onerous aspect of it but what what it means is that where banks in the past would use or inflate KYC requirements to create a barrier to keep an existing customer, it now means that a data subject can go to their bank and say, hey, Mr. Bank A, please send Mr. Bank B all of my KYC information and all of my transactional information. Exactly. That, so, that will it will certainly facilitate processes and I mean just take the, the burden away from customers in terms of doing business you know and hopefully it would it would increase the access to banking services across the board it may it, based on what you are saying it will have a more revolutionary impact on our medical industry because you know and we all know it is health to get your own medical records from a doctor. And that is in line with the common law concept where the doctor owns all the notes that he creates as his own intellectual property. And I don't know what basis upon which the, the medical provider in terms of the hospital won't share those medical records. But based upon what you are seeing and based upon what the Data Protection Act has done, where we now own our own medical records. We can go to any doctor, any medical facility and say, hey, can I get all of my medical data, please? Yes, that, that certainly facilitates that. Um, and it even gives it a, a heightened criteria because medical information is considered sensitive personal data, which is a notch up um, in terms of how it must be protected and the conditions when you're processing um, sensitive personal data. So yes, as it is now, you and I, when we want to see our medical records, um, we cannot be denied. And it, we, we are not to see a portion of those records or whatever the doctor feels like um, conveying to us. Um, we are to see the record in its in its entirety. And it goes further. We can get to our records as well, not only. Then, yes, then, and you can get it. You can you can you can you can certainly ask what they have, and then they have to also um, put it in a format that, as I said, you can read and consume. Um, so and, question. And, so does that mean that the doctors now have to make their handwriting legible? Because you just said that it has to be in a format that we can read. How does how does it go that far? Well, I don't know what they're going to do, but we all know about doctors and their handwriting. I guess they all better make sure that those notes are made on a computer these days. Good, good. So what are some of the other rights? Um, I think the only other one that I didn't mention was um, the right to be informed of uh, when decisions are being made about them in an automated manner. So for example, when a computer system is making a decision about you in terms of your credit worthiness or maybe an, um, an employment decision. Um, sometimes these things take place and persons don't realize that it's an, it's an algorithm, um, a computer program that is using information and spitting out um, result. a result. So the, the act provides that persons have the right to know that a decision is being made about them in this manner, um, the logic behind it. Um, 
to be informed about um, decisions such as that. So they're really being armed with quite a, um, a portfolio of, of rights under, under our act. So that's on the data subject part. So some of the data processing standards that are, have been imposed upon data controllers are, for example, before you process any personal data, you must have a lawful and fair basis for doing so. Lawful and fair are not words that are used generally. The legislation actually sets out what a lawful basis is. And if you were to jump back to the analogy that I gave you earlier, whereas indicating that where a police officer were to come to your house with a search warrant, it would then become lawful. It is something akin to that. You need to establish or bring yourself within one of the lawful bases that have been set up by the law before you can process someone's data. So for example, you can, one of the reasons why you may be collecting personal data is to fulfill a service contract or a contract that you have entered into with your customer. Correct. Another basis may be to, you have a legal obligation to do so. Um, those regulated industries under the Proceeds of Crime Act, for example, have to collect certain KYC data, know your customer data, or you may have, uh, it may be for the purposes of a vital interest. Prior to now, before COVID, it was often hard for people to grasp what the concept of a vital interest is when the simple response would be when it's a life or death death. matter. But in the context of COVID and sharing medical records, we now understand when we say it could be a life or death matter. And in those circumstances, it could be a lawful basis to share data. And it could be in furtherance of the administration of justice. So this is one basic question you must be able to answer before you process any data. What is the lawful basis for this processing? So the fair part of it requires that you notify the data subject by way of a privacy notice, what personal data you're collecting, the reason that you're collecting it, how you're protecting it, and among among other, other things, whether or not you're sharing it with third parties. So that would cover, for the most part, fair and lawful processing. I'm going to jump to the seventh data protection standard, and that really speaks to ensuring that you have technical and organizational measures in place to safeguard the confidentiality, integrity, and availability of the data. The legislation requires that you must, at a bare minimum, where necessary, that is, ensure that all your data is encrypted. And if not all your data, the data, either when it's in transit or at rest, whether or not it means encrypting your hard drive on your laptop, encrypting your network, encrypting the data itself, you have to ensure that some level of encryption is in place. You also, it also requires that the information be pseudonymized. So if in case a customer list gets stolen or lost, persons will not be able to identify the details of the customer because it will be associated with some other representation of the information. 
in addition to that, our legislation requires that you, having established the appropriate technical and organizational measures, that you test the efficacy of the technical measures you have put in place. Um, there are several international standards that one would want to consider striving to achieve to say to demonstrate that you have implemented sufficient technical and organizational measures we have several iso standards you have several international standards that we'll be looking at and the cases and you we will be speaking to some of those experts that own or thought leaders in the different standards so we will learn more about those different standards and there are at least five other processing standards that we have to we will be speaking to and that we will see play out in some of the cases that we'll be examining throughout the course of this podcast so we'll have be able to have a practical understanding of what it means to to process the data in a certain way and what happens when you don't right. because there are practical consequences for when you do not um, so the next question is on the passage of the act what what are some of the things that we'll be required to do hold on big mistake no longer is it on the passage of the act <laughs> so for the local and international community it's no longer breaking news but just in case you did not know the legislation passed through the law and upper house of our parliament in June and by July it was assented to by our governor general. The only thing left to, for it to happen is that it be gazetted. At last check with our print, Jamaica printing office, they, they were unable to confirm whether or not it's gazetted, but I think we can take it for granted that it, if, it not, if it has not been as yet, it will quickly. Quite, quite shortly. Quite shortly. Um, so, what are some of those things that data controllers, persons who process personal data must do on the gazetting of the legislation? So, when our, legis our legislation is enacted, um, when we have a, an effective date, um, data controllers are going to be required to do certain things as uh, under the Act. Um, Firstly, they are going to have to register with the information commission, the office of our information commissioner. Um, that office, that person has not yet been appointed, obviously, um, but that's obviously one of the first things that's going to have to happen under the new regime. But a data controller will have to register with the commissioner. They're going to have to file a personal data protection plan. Um, they will need to appoint a data protection officer if necessary, because not every data controller has to appoint a DPO, but the law does require that they do have to appoint a DPO if, for example, they are a public authority, if they are processing sensitive personal data, and by that we mean if they are processing um, medical or um, medical data, if they're processing biometric or genetic data, if they're processing anything that has to do with political um, affiliation or uh, racial view, affiliation, um, if they have, if they're processing anything that has to do with criminal convictions, I believe. So that's the third category. And the fourth under the act is if they are processing large amounts 
of data. And lastly, they will have to file a data protection impact assessment on a yearly basis. In other jurisdictions, that, is, that requirement is not there in terms of a yearly basis where um, data controllers may only have to file a DPIA if they are starting, if they're implementing a new process, um, if they identify a, a particular risk to, to the data subject's data here, our data controllers are going to have to file a data protection impact assessment yearly. So, so that is one of the challenges that design privacy hopes to help our clients solve. Um, through one, the podcast, by just educating them on these different obligations, but two, as a service, we also go in and help these companies put themselves in a position to register on the implementation of the act. Because on the implementation of the act, what I hear you saying is that they would have to file a data protection impact assessment. So that is something that only that can be done, that has to be done before you register, not after you register. How the legislation is now structured, there will be a two-year implementation period, yes. which is the mirrors how they implemented the GDPR. It was passed in 2016. There's a two-year period before it was actually implemented. We understand that some of the, one of the primary purposes for doing so is one, to allow private sector put themselves in a position to comply because we understand that this is brand new, and also give the information commissioner or the government an opportunity to appoint an information commissioner and allow the information commissioner to build up its capacity to be in a position to hit the ground running mm -hmm. at the end of year two. two year. So there would be a wide array of insights that we will be take, sharing with our listeners during the course of these podcasts, just to break down what may appear to be daunting or concept that may be out of your reach. The quicker we can embrace the Data Protection Act as, a, as businesses, is the quicker we can enter into and effectively participate in the fourth industrial revolution. The reality is what the Data Protection Act is seeking to do is requiring businesses to treat, be accountable for the data, personal data that they're processing. And in being accountable, they're also required to manage it efficiently. So you need to know what data you're processing and manage it efficiently and be accountable for the data you're processing. That is what the Data Protection Act is all about. So we want to quickly embrace it and seek some of the benefits. So in our next episodes, we will be looking at how the legislation has been implemented in other countries around the world and how they have sought to sanction entities that have not complied with the legislation and yeah, how the law hits the road. So we look forward to sharing with you over the next series of podcasts. 
Uh, Kerry, thank you very much. And we'll see you next week. Thank you, Chuck. See you all next week. Thanks for joining us this week on Design Privacy Weekly. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes so you'll never miss a show while you're at it. If you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us to reach more people like you who can benefit from our content.